so much for coming and for staying uh, a little bit later. Yeah. Feel, um, this is a real treat to have Joanna here. My name is Jennifer Qualley. I'm a recent alum at RISD. I graduated in 2011, um, so just a month ago. Um, and uh, I, I'll begin by introducing Joanne, but before I do that, um, I'd like to acknowledge Wayne Ossing, who's the Director of Student Development and Counseling at RISI, and Andy Jacks, the new Community Service Coordinator in Student Affairs. They both facilitated this talk tonight, and without the support, their support, we might not be here. So I'm deeply, deeply grateful to them for their efforts. I'm also immensely thankful to Joanne for being willing to speak tonight, mm. um, and I'd just like to say a few words about her. Joanne's career began right here at RISD, where she earned a BFA and MA before pursuing a master's degree in counseling. In the last 20 years, she has been studying and practicing meditation and mindfulness. Based in Rhode Island, she currently oversees and teaches within the Rhode Island Community of Mindfulness, which consists of five meditation groups in Providence County and South County, Rhode Island. Joanne is also an associate chaplain with the University of Rhode Island and has formally received the authority to teach in the order of interbeing from her teacher and its founders and master, Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, a sought-after speaker on mindfulness practice, Joanne has led retreats and workshops in New York, Maine, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. To her students, she is a wise, compassionate, and beloved teacher. Please join me in welcoming Joanne Friday. Welcome, everyone. I wanted to apologize for how late it is. Um, uh, the walk took a little longer than we'd anticipated. So uh, it was very lovely, though. Those of you that were able to join us for the walk, uh, thank you so much for being there. Um, I'm very happy to be here. I haven't uh, uh, been in Mem Hall for many years, so uh, it's fun to be back. Um, I really appreciate being invited to do this. Uh, we did the Peace Walk. Uh, this evening, and uh, I know that there are a number of people who feel that uh, we are living in very precarious times, and uh, that to be just walking is not really doing enough. So tonight I wanted to talk a little bit about how uh, when we, um, uh, well, the, the title of the talk, uh, when uh, turning inward isn't turning away. Uh, how we can be very, very engaged, and how our practice can help us do that a lot more effectively. So uh, before I begin, though, I'd like to uh, sound the bell three times. We always invite the bell in our practice, and it just is to uh, let us breathe three times, to come back to ourselves and to calm ourselves, calm our minds, calm our bodies, and just bring ourselves into the present. So uh, we'll begin with three sounds of the bell.
So, uh, I was at RISD uh, in 1970, and in 1970 at RISD is when we went on strike. Uh, that was in the, during the Vietnam War, and uh, the killings at Kent State had happened, and uh, we went on strike. And in typical RISD fashion, uh, the way we took action was to go to Washington, D.C. during the uh, marches and silkscreen t-shirts on the mall. Uh, but uh, I was very active during the Vietnam War uh, trying to um, uh, create peace. And what I found then in the peace movement was that there was a lot of anger, um, a lot of hatred, and a lot of violence. And um, we had created a duality. We had created a them and us. Uh, we were right, they were wrong, we were good, they were bad. Uh, we had created all of the conditions for war within the peace movement. So um, what I have learned since in my practice, I've been um, uh, engaged in a mindfulness practice uh, for about 20 years. And the thing that I've found out is that when I can actually transform the hatred, anger, and violence in myself, when I can um, uh, get familiar with the inner terrain, when I can uh, uh, see clearly my, how my conditioning has uh, created my habits of mind and colored my perception of everything, it helps me to have more clarity when I'm working for social change that then I don't have to uh, engage um, from a place of my own anger, from my own uh, hurt, from my own uh, uh, wounds from the past. I'm able to simply be present for what is and address the issue at hand. Uh, I find that it takes um, a lot less energy and in many ways I'm more effective. <laughs> that. Uh, and the other real blessing is that I'm not strengthening the seeds of anger, hatred, and violence in myself. Because what I found in the past was that um, uh, when, when I confronted injustice, uh, when I reacted to injustice from a place of hatred myself, I was strengthening those aspects in myself. Uh, so I was becoming almost exactly like the people that I had the difficulty with. Um, does this make sense? Okay. Um, so in our practice, um, what we look at is, uh, like tonight, we're doing a peace walk. And many people feel that, uh, you know, the world is on fire. The species is in a really precarious position. I am uh, uh, coming from a Buddhist tradition, and I'll be speaking uh, probably from that uh, perspective. But what I want you to know is that my teacher says he has no interest in anybody being a Buddhist. He said there are too many Buddhists in the world already. And um, in Buddhism, we believe that we're made up of everything in the whole cosmos. So he says all Buddhists are made of non-Buddhist elements anyway. Uh, and that what the Buddha taught us were simply practices. He didn't ask anybody to believe anything. He said, don't take anybody's word for anything, not even mine. Trust your experience. And he gave us a bunch of practices that we could use in order to uh, transform our unskillful states of mind, get some clarity, and respond more skillfully to life. And what Thich Nhat Hanh says is that um, 
uh, we're all invited just to try the practices. It's really, to me, it's like a system of inquiry. That uh, it's an experiment. That I try the practice and watch what arises. I pay attention to see uh, whether or not I can transform um, those difficult emotions in myself whether I can, can see through my misperceptions so that I have more clarity. The things that work for me, I continue to use. The things that don't, I leave behind. And he said, everybody's invited to just use the practices and um, strengthen your connection with your root tradition, whatever that is. Uh, so I just want to state that clearly at the beginning because uh, that's the spirit in which all of this is offered. Thich Nhat Hanh came to his interpretation of the practices through the war in Vietnam. And he, uh, he wanted to spend his life looking deeply at what were the causes of uh, war. What are the causes? What are the conditions? What the Buddha said is when causes and conditions are sufficient, things manifest. And when they're no longer sufficient, things don't manifest anymore. So we need to look deeply at what are the causes and conditions for the shape that we're in. And perhaps uh, when we can do that and see clearly, we can be more effective at creating causes and conditions for peace on earth to happen. What he found out, he spent 60 years studying Buddhist psychology. And in Buddhist psychology, what we learn is that they have a, a model. They've come up with a model. And this was created simply by many, many, many hundreds and thousands of years of people looking, just sitting and watching their own minds. And the, the model that they use is, uh, if we were to compare it to Western psychology, that we have mind consciousness, which is what we're aware of, and store consciousness, which is like the subconscious. And in the store consciousness, there are seeds for everything. There are seeds for anger, hatred, violence, love, kindness, compassion, everything. And what we're taught is every single person has all those same seeds. The only difference is whichever ones get well watered is what manifests in the mind consciousness. So if I've had lots of seeds of anger watered in me, that's what's going to manifest in my daily life. Um, we might be or we might know of people that uh, whenever we're driving, a driver is not being very skillful, the first reaction is anger. That just tells us that that's very strong in us. It doesn't say you're a horrible, terrible person. It just says that is what got well watered in me. And what happens for us is that when we can look at the world like that, it helps us to have a lot more compassion and understanding for ourselves and a lot more compassion and understanding for other people as well because we all have the potential for all of it. So... I thought tonight I would just give you this little brief overview of uh, what practice consists of, how we use it, and then how we apply it. Because Thich Nhat Hanh, during the war, he sat down with uh, five other monastics, and they said, how can we just stay in a zendo when the world is on fire? The whole country's burning up. We just can't sit here. So they came up with precepts to live by where monastics could practice in the world. And that was the first time that had ever been done. And that's what, that's what we call engaged practice. Engaged Buddhism came out of that. And in typical Eastern fashion, they said, uh, we'll try this for 10 years, and if it works, we'll share it with other people. So it seemed to work pretty well, so they shared it with us. Um, but that's how our whole, our whole order came into being. And what I'd like to do is just, like I said, give you a little bit of an overview. How many of you are meditators? 
How many of you meditate already? Quite a few. Okay. And um, I wanted to leave some time at the end for questions because I would love to have uh, to hear what it is that you would like to know about. But to begin with, I'll just give you a little brief overview of what exactly it is that we do. And uh, like I said, we study, when we study Buddhist psychology and we understand that we are the products of our conditioning, we have developed habits based on whatever our conditioning was. We develop habits of mind and habits of reacting to everything. Neuroscience is now proving all of this by hooking everybody up to uh, functional MRIs. And they have used the Dalai Lama's monks to see what happens during all different kinds of meditation. And what they found out was that, which I thought was really wonderful, was when they had them meditate on compassion, that centers of the brain that light up just when you're ready to take action are the centers of the brain that light up when we do meditations on compassion. So that's why when people say, well, you're just sitting around contemplating your navel, you know, and the world's on fire, we should do something. Uh, by transforming our unskillful states of mind, we are doing something to begin with. And the other thing is that it really, like I said, it really helps us to be a little bit more effective and a lot happier. We don't have to live in constant agitation, constant irritation, constant fear. All of those negative emotions or unwholesome emotions, uh, we can be a whole lot happier and still be standing up to injustice in the world. So that's how the whole thing uh, got started. What we can see is that depending on what our conditioning has been, we've set up these habits of mind. When we are confronted with any perceived threat of any kind, and that could just be somebody looking at us the wrong way or saying the wrong thing, what neuroscience now knows is that it's the limbic system of the brain, the emotional system in the brain, that clicks right into action and just reacts. It short circuits the thinking. The prefrontal cortex has nothing to do with it. It just goes right to the emotional centers of the brain, and we just react out of habit. And what we can do in our practice, and what the practice is, is when we feel ourselves, if, when we feel like gas has been thrown on the fire of our anger, and we can feel the anger come up from the stored consciousness into our mind consciousness, we practice stopping and breathing, calming ourselves down so we can pay attention and look deeply at what is going on here, rather than just react. And what happens then is that we get have like a front row seat to the, what goes on in the limbic system of the brain. Because what normally happens is you have a strong reaction, somebody, you have some perceived threat, the limbic system clicks into action, and then it goes through a Google search through the emotional memory and tries to find a match. When this happened in the past, I reacted this way. So I don't have to think about it, I just do it. I just do it, what I've ever done my whole life. And what happens then is we just continue the same cycle. If it wasn't very skillful what we did in the past, we just continue the same cycle of suffering. We create suffering for ourselves and everybody else. When we can stop and breathe and pay attention and see clearly what exactly it is that's going on with us, then we have a choice then we can see it for what it is and we can say, oh, it's just, um, well, I can give you a really quick example in my own life how this works. 
uh, my husband and I were at a silent retreat years ago. This is when I first started practice. And in the middle of a silent retreat, he phoned home. And he came to me in the middle of the retreat with a little note. And it said, so-and-so called asking to borrow this thing of yours. And I called her back and said, sure. And I was enraged. I was absolutely beside myself livid. And I couldn't believe how mad I was because what was true was that if I had gotten that message on the machine, I would have called my friend and said, sure. So I knew it wasn't the thing that had anything to do with it. So I sat down on my bench. I wasn't able to talk, which was a blessing for him and for me. We were at a silent retreat. So I sat down on my bench, and I looked deeply. I breathed, got myself calmed down. And then what the practice is is to call that rage back up in us. We don't try to ignore it, suppress it, pretend it's not there, say, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not upset. Life doesn't upset me. You've mistaken me for a human being. Not like that. We totally, completely look deeply we stop and say, wow, I'm really enraged, and I need to get in touch with it. I need to understand what this is that's going on with me. So that's what I did. And when I did that, what happened was that um, I immediately got transported back to being 11 years old, and I was in a conversation with my mother and father. And when I was born, my father wasn't very happy. As a young man, he was really stressed out, and he was angry a lot. But they put me out on the front porch. I'm not sure <laughs> if, uh, what, they, what their motivation was. But when I was a month old, they put me on the front porch in my carriage. And the guy who lived upstairs came home from work. He reached his finger down. I held on to it. We were in love, and that was it. So from the time I was zero until I was 11, he was like a surrogate father to me. He showed me unconditional love. They, he didn't have children, and he and his wife were really kind. They were really, really wonderful to me. When I was 11, he died of a heart attack. And in, when I'm sitting on my bench, what happened was I was transported back to this conversation that I had no conscious memory of with my parents, and uh, they were telling me that he was dead. And they said he'd had a heart attack two days before, but they didn't want to tell me because I would be too upset by all the tubes and things in his body. So what I could see when as I was sitting on this bench, and this is 40 years after the fact, what I could see was that at that time, I had probably made a decision that there was nothing to do. He was dead. That was it. The most important thing in my life, and nobody asked me. And what I assume happened was I was enraged, but there was nothing to do about it. So I just stuffed it, forgot about it, and went on with my life, overreacting every time I wasn't considered. That's what I realized sitting on my bench. Now, if I didn't have a practice, what I would have done would have been, I would have gotten really mad and yelled at Richard, and I would have missed that Google search. Do you see? What was happening was that it was making a match. When did I feel like this before? When was the last time, when was the time that I, I had the same feelings? And when I can go back and send myself love and compassion as that 11-year-old, what I'm doing is, the practice is called healing the past in the present moment. And every single time I do that, I'm laying down a new memory in my emotional memory so that it's not like the whole world becomes considerate. It's that after that, whenever I feel that I'm not being considered, instead of reacting, I can see it for what it is. I can just go, oh, yeah, there it is again. I see it for what it is. I don't have to react. And that's when we're empowered to make a choice. Otherwise, we're just victims of our habits and our conditioning. We just keep reacting in life. It's like, you know, just having 
chemical reactions constantly and we're totally out of control. How many times do we do something and as soon as we say something or do something, we go, oh, I can't believe I did that. It's going to take me how many, how many years to get over this or to apologize for what I just did or try to make things okay with this person. So that is what we look at as being free will. That when we develop our mindfulness and concentration, it gives us free will. And you may say, well, what does this have to do with social change? And what does it have to do with political action? What it has to do for me is the fact that it allows me to see, like I said, have some more clarity. We do sitting meditation, we do walking meditation, and then we try to be mindful for the rest of the day. When we do sitting meditation, the reason that we do it, I can't tell you how many people come to me and they'll say, oh, I can't meditate. Whenever I do, my mind goes crazy. It just goes crazy. And what happens is our mind is always going crazy. When we stop, we just notice it. You know, we're, not, we're never quiet enough to really notice what's going on with our minds. So when we stop and we breathe and we just try to calm our mind and we just watch, our mind will go off a million times, we bring it back to the breath. And you think, well, that's about as exciting as watching grass grow. You know, why would anybody do this? Well, it's not because it's a whole lot of fun, but what it's about is it's like um, if we're interested in strengthening our bodies and we do exercise in order to be strong enough that when we need to do heavy lifting, we're capable, it's the same thing with our minds. When we retrain our minds uh, simply by doing sitting meditation, we try to carry over what we learn in the sit for 24 hours of the day so that we can breathe, calm ourselves down, and look deeply before we react to anything. So people will ask me, what is it you do for a living? I say, I show up, pay attention, and respond skillfully to life. That's what I try to do. Uh, sometimes I'm more successful than others. But that is why we try to calm ourselves. Thich Nhat Hanh, what he's found out, I said that he's practiced for 60 years trying to create peace on the planet and trying to look deeply at the causes of war. And what he found out was that if each individual could transform the hatred, anger, and violence in themselves, there would not be any wars on the planet. If we could look deeply enough to understand that we are all connected, if we could look deeply enough to know that your happiness is my happiness, your safety is my safety, until everybody on the planet is safe, none of us are going to be safe. But we don't know that because we don't look deeply enough. But when we can look deeply enough to see the interconnection of all of us, then we're beginning to be able to live in peace. We want to take care of the earth. We can see its connection to every... I'm made up of everything in the earth. When I can see the connection, I only want to take care of the earth. When I can see that when I do injustice to anybody, I'm doing injustice to myself, I want to take care of everyone. I don't want anybody to be suffering. You see, But what's happened is we've been powerfully conditioned to be disconnected from that awareness. And so we're fiercely conditioned to be fierce individuals from the moment of birth, just about. There has to be a winner, a loser, somebody who's best, somebody who's not. We always have to be competing. And when you can see through the surface of that, you can see it doesn't work very well. When we can see through the surface of war, you know, what happens is... You hurt me, I want you to suffer, so I'm going to do something to hurt you. So all we do is keep escalating the hatred and violence. We keep strengthening those seeds in each other. And all we're doing is creating conditions for the next war. So we may win a war, but it's only temporary. We've already sown the seeds for the next one. 
1991, uh, the first Gulf War broke out, and Thich Nhat Hanh was furious. He couldn't believe it. He watched the thing on TV, and he was in France. He was supposed to come to the United States in two weeks' time, and he said, I can't go to a country that does something like this. And he stayed up all night doing walking meditation, and by morning, what he came to, the insight he had, was that George Bush I was George Bush I because he was Thich Nhat Hanh. And what he said was that many of you would want to get rid of George Bush, but until we transform the collective consciousness, we're only going to recreate another George Bush. And that's just what we did. So this is what we look at, is just to see how by transforming ourselves, by being able to cultivate loving kindness and compassion for ourselves, loving kindness and compassion for each other, deep understanding of ourselves and understanding of each other, we're much more effective in negotiating for change. We don't have to create wars to do it. Okay? I think that's probably enough for me to be saying about this. But I would love to hear, does anybody have any questions? Or if you would like to just share what it is that brought you here tonight, I would love to hear. So thank you. No questions. I don't believe it. Yes. Could everyone hear Jennifer? No. Okay. Did you want to say it again? You want me to repeat? Okay. Can you all hear me? I should yes. ask that. Okay. Uh, she said that I have a book here that is uh, one of Thich Nhat Hanh's books. It's called The World We Have. And it says, A uh, Buddhist Approach to Peace and Ecology. And in it, he talks about acceptance and the importance of acceptance. And she said that's a concept that's very difficult for just about all of us. Whenever I even mention the word, people go crazy. It's like, what do you mean accept? If we accept things, we're just going to accept stuff as, they, as it is, and nothing will ever change, and the world won't get any better, and we're, uh, there will be no such thing as progress. And really, what we're talking about in acceptance is being able to accept things as they are right in this moment. And what that allows us to do is calm down that agitation, that unhappiness that we're experiencing almost all the time. That we're always doing a dance between aversion and desire. We almost always are dissatisfied with things as they are. We can be in a situation and go, well, yeah, this is nice, but it would be nicer if. The most beautiful example I saw of this was a number of years ago, my husband and I were out in Michigan. We were visiting some friends, and we went to a matinee with the friends and their four-year-old. And it was in the winter time. And when the movie was done, we came outside, and it had gotten dark, because it was the winter time. It had been dark while we were in there. And this little four-year-old, I could see him standing under the lights of the marquee, and he had his hands on his hips like this, and he goes, but I don't want it to be nighttime. <laughs> and he was incensed. And when I saw that, it was the perfect image for my mind. I looked at him and said, yep, that's just it. But this is what we rail against what is all the time. And many times we're railing against things we have absolutely no control over whatsoever. I know today we were having this peace walk. I think there were a lot of people involved in this that were very upset that it might rain. 
We're watching all week long whether or not it's going to rain. How much agitation, anxiety could we have over whether or not? We have no control over the rain. No amount of worry, nothing is going to change. It's going to be what it is. But that doesn't stop us. We've developed these habits and this conditioning that we always have this kind of low-level dissatisfaction running through us. And when we can just accept what is in the present moment, it lets us relax, it helps us to enjoy what is, and it doesn't mean things will never change. What we know for sure is nothing will stay the same. Even if we want to make sure that nothing changes, we're not going to. And so by simply relaxing into what is in the minute, we create some space to allow things to shift. Because what happens, say we have a very difficult person in our life. If we have a difficult person, what we can do is already make up our mind. We don't like them. We know what their habits are like. We don't like any of them. We have all these judgments and criticisms of this person. And so when we meet with that person, the energy that we're transmitting to them is one of dislike, is one of judgment and criticism. How many of you can't tell when somebody doesn't like you? (laughs) Not too many. For the most part, even when I say things, I can say all the right words, but if I really have resentment or anger, you can feel it. We can pick that up from each other. So when we've made up our mind about another person, and we really don't like that person, we're strengthening those aspects of that person that we don't like simply by our judgment and criticism and our lack of acceptance of them. And so what we try to do is to let go of that and in the present moment simply accept a person exactly as they are in this moment without any expectation of them ever being any different. And we try to do the same thing for ourselves. For me, that was a huge revelation. It was like to accept myself just as I am right in this present moment without any expectation that I'll ever be any different. What happens is it creates this incredible spaciousness where everything's possible. It allows all kinds of possibilities for that person to respond to you differently, for you to respond to that person differently. It's like I may have made up my mind, no matter what I do, this is what this person's going to do. They would have made up their mind, no matter what they do, I'm going to react in a certain way. When I can change the, the game plan, when I can change what I'm transmitting to them energetically, I've left all kinds of an infinite possibilities for uh, solutions I've never even thought about to happen. So to say that we accept things is not to say we sit, sit around like limp noodles and just let the world happen and we can see injustice happening all over the place and just say, oh, well, whatever. It's not like that. We can care very deeply about what is, but we can also have an acceptance for in this moment, I need to just accept that in this moment, I'm not changing anything. In this very moment, I am what I am, you are what you are, we're not changing it right now. But in the next moment, there's all kinds of possibilities and options. We're beginning anew every second of our life. Every cell in our body is changing every second of our life. And the same is true with people that we love and people that are difficult for us. So that's what's meant by acceptance. Is it, does that make sense? Because it's a very tough thing. We get, I give talks sometimes and people will say, what do you mean accept? You, mix, you expect us just to sit around and accept what is? I don't think so. I'm not accepting that there's a war in the world. I'm not accepting that there's injustice. Well, neither am I. 
But in this moment, I'm accepting that's what exists right now. And when I free myself up and relax myself, I'm in a much better frame of mind to take absolutely much more effective action to create change in the world. And chances are good I'm going to be a lot more effective in doing it. Does that make sense? If I'm yelling and screaming at somebody, if I go uh, up to a politician with whom I disagree and I'm yelling and screaming at that person, they're not listening. We're not going to have a conversation. There's no conversation that happens. But if I can go up to a person and say, please help me to understand what it is you're doing. And I practice some listening, and then I can respond to them. They're in a place where they can listen to me, where there might be a possibility that they would. Does that make sense? Okay. I want to make sure I'm making sense. It always is a, a good thing. Because this is all uh, real familiar to me. I don't know if it is to everybody. Does that answer the question? Okay. Anybody else have any questions? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can attend uh, in the past anyhow to be more of a, the placards and the yelling and watching you and your group being peace. Uh, the thing, the comment that I would make is it takes a huge amount of courage. It takes a lot of strength and energy. You know, uh, I think there's real misconceptions sometimes that people hide from reality, but you don't at all. Being out there in the middle of this craziness. <laughs> No. Well, thank you for bringing that up. We often go to marches and rallies, and I'm part of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and we march in silence. And that's why the peace, peace Walk tonight, some people were saying, well, you need to get out there and do something. And to be peace in the midst of chaos and confusion is a very powerful statement to make, I think. And there's real power in silence. You're just absolutely taking a stand and very determinedly that you are being peace and nothing is going to pull you off your center. And that's it. <laughs> so it is a way of also taking action. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, Phyllis. Um, tonight when I was walking along, someone called out from one of the cars, remember 9-11, and I'm thinking, it's like, we want, everyone wants to remember 9-11, but why can't we remember other things like peace? You know, mm -hmm. just, we want to re hold on to the negative things that happen. Mm -hmm. As a child, too, I would ask my, I asked my father, why do people just don't refuse to go to war? Why don't they choose just not to go? And my father told me that, well, government just had propaganda and tried to convince <laughs> it's But I, I just was always curious as a child, why? Why people chose to go to war. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, the thing with 9-11 uh, was also a really good example of uh, when we look deeply, when somebody does something horrific and we really look deeply at what's been done, it almost never is skillful means to react out of fear. That it's really important almost always to stop and look deeply at really what is going on with me. Because like I said, when we respond out of fear to a situation, very seldom is it skillful means. And almost always, we create a whole lot more suffering for ourselves and everybody else. 
And in 9-11, we responded from fear. And it's been amazingly costly in terms of suffering. I remember after, in terms of talking to politicians, when the war first broke out, not when it first broke out, probably a couple years into the war, I guess, I met with Senator Reid. And I said to him, you know, you're in Washington and I'm not, and I would really like to understand better what's happening. I would like to know what your perception. First, I started off by saying, how can I help you? And he told me that, you know, he was hoping the Democrats would get elected in the next election. And then uh, he asked me, what is it that brings you here? And I said, I'd like you to let me know whether my perception is accurate, because you're in Washington and I'm not. And I said, it seemed to me when I read over the project for the New American Century that was written up in 1996 by George Bush and a number of other people that were in his uh, administration, I said, it looked like a perfect blueprint for deconstructing our government, as it is. And I said, it seemed like when they came into office, those things were just happening one after the other. And it was almost as if we had experienced a bloodless coup. And was my perception accurate? I really was wondering whether that was an accurate perception or not. And he looked me right in the eye and he said, I agree with absolutely everything you've said. The only thing I don't agree with is has not been bloodless. I've been to Iraq 11 times. So sometimes when we can approach things from a place of being peace, we can have a dialogue instead of just yelling. And we can try to open up some channels for communication rather than just being at war. So um, I don't know. I think we're probably well over our time already. But anybody else before we close? Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate being invited to speak with you. I hope that this was fruitful, that you're able to take something away that you can put to use right away. Like I said at the beginning, that's what we're invited to do, is just try it out and see if it works. And if it does, keep doing it. If it doesn't, let it go. But thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate your true presence. And we'll end with three sounds of the bell. I would just like to add one thing, 
and that is that the basic instruction for us always is that we all have to be with quite a lot of suffering in the world, in ourselves and in the world around us. And uh, the first thing that we do in order to expand our capacity to be with suffering, our own and everybody else's, is to water the seeds of joy in us. So that is our basic practice, is making sure that we're compassionate with ourselves and we don't expose, overexpose ourselves to suffering. That when we just insist on constantly focusing on everything that's wrong, everything that's bad, nothing that's working, etc., that's not being compassionate with ourselves. And in order to be able to be fully present for what is, we need to expand our capacity by watering seeds of joy. So I hope that you can all at least set aside an equal measure of time to make sure that you nourish yourselves quite well and have a lot of compassion for yourself. Happiness is critical. <laughs> so enjoy the practice.